This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Kick-Ass Politics is sponsored by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. That's Fiverr with two R's. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services, with over a 100 categories all offered at a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards and stationery, web design, translation, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can imagine, all offered at a base price of just $5. In fact, the announcer who does our intro on Kick-Ass Politics, I found him on Fiverr, a professional radio announcer to do our intro for just five bucks. And right now, if you go to Kick-Ass Politics and click on the link for Fiverr on our sponsor page, you'll be showing your support for the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. Hi there. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. My guest today is Arthur C. Brooks. He's the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and he's the author of 10 books, including the bestseller The Road to Freedom. He has a new book that's currently at number eight on the New York Times bestseller list and still climbing. It's called The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Despite what some may say, Arthur says conservatives do have a heart, and he says it's time for them to start showing it. In just a moment, he'll discuss why it's crucial for Republican candidates in 2016 to tone down the anger and the negative rhetoric. In his words, conservatives running for office need to stop talking about what they're against and start talking about being for people. In just a moment, we'll talk about the war on poverty as a moral imperative for conservatives how we can win the debate on social welfare, and start talking about low-income Americans as untapped assets instead of liabilities. We'll talk about how a broader personal appeal can help make inroads to Hispanics, women, and young voters, broaden the big tent, and win in 2016. All that and more with Arthur Brooks in just a moment. Stay tuned. To Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. I'm joined today by Arthur C. Brooks. He's the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and he is a self-proclaimed bleeding heart conservative. It's all in his new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Arthur, thanks for coming on the show. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the conservative heart, I, I know that there are some people out there who are thinking to themselves, conservative heart, that, that's not a thing. Um, <laughs> for those people, explain what is the heart of conservatism and why you decided to write this book. I grew up in a family that didn't believe there was such a thing as the conservative heart, that it wasn't a thing, in fact. It was, you know, I grew up in Seattle in a liberal home, and I mean, everybody in Seattle is liberal for all intents and purposes. And what everybody knows, the conventional wisdom, is that 
conservatives don't care about poor people. They might be good in business or money, but poverty is not something that's important to conservatives. And I grew up with this preconceived notion, and I had it until I was an adult, and I started to look at, I guess, the facts. I went to college in my late 20s after having dropped out of college earlier and, and, and run off as a musician. And when I finally studied economics in my late 20s, I found something that really shocked me. I was looking at statistics about poverty, and, and I found, much to my great surprise, that the world's worst poverty, starvation-level poverty, had fallen by 80% since I was a kid. I, I didn't know that. Most people don't know that. Most people think that poverty's gotten worse. It's gotten much better. But what really shocked me were the reasons. The reason that the world has gotten less poor since I was a child was not because of the United Nations or foreign aid, and certainly not because of big governments and central planning. It was because of globalization, free trade, property rights, the rule of law, and entrepreneurship. It was American-style free enterprise spreading around the world. And I thought to myself, if this has pulled 2 billion people out of poverty, what can we do to pull the next 2 billion people out of poverty? And the answer is we need to be warriors for free enterprise ideas. And that's what brought me into the conservative movement that showed me the conservative heart. That's what this book is all about, is to show conservatives the proof that American conservative ideas are best for poor people all around the world and in the United States. And then the big task of the book is helping conservatives make the case. I mean, conservatives are a disaster when it comes to actually talking about affairs of the heart. They talk as if they really did only care about money frequently. They talk like they're angry and they don't like poor people. And so this book talks about how to remedy that. There's a, a whole debate training manual in this book that I've used with members of Congress. And it's extraordinary. Using just a few communications tools, we can turn this around. If we don't do it, we're going to lose in 2016, but if we do, it can be a big wave election, and we can remember that the conservative heart is the reason we're in the movement. Well, you know, I know there are some people listening to this, and they're thinking to themselves, we've heard all this before. Fifteen years ago, George W. Bush built his whole presidential platform around the idea of, quote-unquote, compassionate conservatism. Now, you say that you don't like this term. Why? Compassionate conservative was a term, as you just mentioned, that George W. Bush coined or his campaign coined uh, back in the 2000s. And what it did was it, it, it suggested that you have to put a qualifier on conservatism, that conservatives are not inherently compassionate. It's, a, it's kind of a... It was kind of a, an apology, like, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative, but I'm not one of those mean ones. Uh, I'm a nice one. Well, we shouldn't have to do that. Our ideas are better for poor people. We have deeply morally held views about the dignity of every individual, that everybody is, a, uh, is created in the image of God, and that opportunity should be shared by all. These are non-negotiable conservative principles, and they're inherently compassionate. And furthermore, when you look at the, the way the country was formed, I mean, your ancestors and mine, they came running away from some place where they couldn't make their life. They were either running for their lives or they were just riffraff who had no direction to go but up. They came to the United States not to get a better system of forced income redistribution. They came here because capitalism and what we think of as conservative economics were the basis of social justice for these people. Our system is inherently compassionate and it needs no qualifiers. A moment ago, you talked about the global poverty levels, and you're right. They have dropped dramatically 
Oh, just over the past couple of decades. But most people have uh, this impression that world poverty is, is getting worse than ever. But you point out that it has plummeted over the past few years. Uh, you point out that it's not because of U.S. aid or the U.N. It's largely because of conservative principles like free trade, entrepreneurship, free fair elections. But at the same time, as we're seeing stunning measurable success in defeating poverty globally, poverty numbers in America have barely moved over the same amount of time. What is it that we're doing on a global scale that we're failing to do here at home? Poor people all over the world, they look at what's going on in the United States and they say, I want that freedom and I want that stuff. And so they're copying us. If you look all over East Asia, they've copied the United States. Places in Sub-Saharan Africa today are not poor where they used to be poor, not desperately poor like they used to be, because they're copying the American system. The problem is that we're not copying our American system, and we haven't for a long time. And we have pretty free economy for a lot of people, but not for the bottom half. See, here's the biggest problem, Ben. We're not practicing our own religion anymore. At least we're not practicing our own espoused economic system. If you look at the bottom half of the American economy today, it's less free than it's ever been. It's more regulated. Uh, people are more likely to find that it's easier to get by on government assistance than it even is to work. These are it's not, by the way, the poor people's fault. It's the fault of a system that's not sufficiently dedicated to creating opportunity. And so too many people feel like they simply can't get ahead without help from the government. And it's stunning when you look at the data on this. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, there were about 6% of men ages 20 to 64 not institutionalized, which means they're not in the military and they're not in prison. 6% of guys, able-bodied men, were out of the workforce. Today, it's 17% of these guys. There's more idleness. There's more desperation. There's more dependency, which is to say there's less capitalism in the bottom half. And, and the results are predictable. In, in, since the Obama non-recovery has been going on for the past seven years, the bottom half of the income distribution has 0% economic growth rate. The truth is we're hurting the poor in this country. We're stunting their growth. Mobility is falling apart because we're not practicing what we preach around the world. We're simply not practicing our own free enterprise. Well, and it, it seems to me like it's a very difficult task when you have people in this country who have been weaned on the government teat. And, you know, through no fault of their own, uh, that that's all that they've really known. And how how do you reach out to them and how do you make this case and present an alternative without seeming condescending? I think that's the very difficult problem that we have to figure out here. For sure. And you know, I talk to Republican politicians all day long and they believe frequently that they can't actually bring they can't they can't bring a, a the game to the liberals. They think that liberals will always go to poor people and say, I'm going to give you free stuff. And that's always going to win the day. And in point of fact, Republicans should never conservatives should never try to outbid the liberals in terms of government largesse. They'll always lose. But actually, conservatives have a better case to make that's more empowering and more dignifying and more human for the poor, which is to say, I might not give you the same amount of free stuff, but I'm going to give you more opportunity. They need to answer the culture of dependency with a culture of aspiration. And they need to be true warriors for work, for entrepreneurship, for education. And people will vote for that. Now, not everybody will, to be sure. But last time that was tried, when there was a truly, a truly unvarnished conservative 
who came out of the gate as an optimist and promised equal opportunity and believed in everybody and who truly, when you saw his heart, his conservative heart, you saw somebody who didn't think that poor people are just liabilities to manage. He saw them as assets to develop. He won and he won big. And that was Ronald Reagan. The secret to his success was not that he was fighting against government programs and spending and, and, and deficits and debt. The success of Reagan was his optimism and his belief that everybody, including poor people, were assets to our society, and he offered aspiration to the whole society. And that, that's our game. That's what we need to do. Right. And one of the things that you point out is that, uh, I guess, in his, uh, in his nominating speech, he mentioned people 87 times. He used the word people, uh, not the word GDP, not taxes, not economic growth, but people. And I, I have to imagine if I looked back to uh, to to Mitt Romney's speech, you know, in the same situation, it probably wouldn't be the case. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and again, you what you talk about reflects to other people what you care about. And this is one of the key things I'm trying to do in the conservative heart is to help conservatives remember what they care about and to express themselves on that basis. One of the things in the book that you talk about that it seems to be totally lost on a lot of conservative politicians is, in gen as a general rule, conservatives are not against having a safety net. But the perception out there is that the conservatives are against the poor and they're against having a social safety net. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And the biggest reason for that is not just we have a mainstream media that's hostile to conservative ideas. It's the way the conservatives themselves talk. So you hear about the, the debate over food stamps. Food stamps consume billions and billions of dollars, $100 billion a year approximately, give or take, depending on how you count it. And, and conservatives will say, well, that's too much, and there are too many people that are on food stamps, so let's cut the food stamp budget. That's a, that's a huge error. The left, in fact, does make a mistake by counting their success in terms of the number of people who get food stamps they need. We define our success on the right as the number of people who need food stamps. So the, the, the solution for the right is not to cut the food stamp budget. It's to work for an economy in a society where fewer people need these benefits. Nobody goes out and says, you know what? I, I would prefer to have my kids seem to get a welfare check than a paycheck. Anybody who thinks that about poor people doesn't know any poor people or is is basically a bigot. We can do a lot better than that, and we start by actually declaring peace on the safety net, but only for the poor and always with work, which is our advantage. And, and, and you mentioned in there that I think even 90, 97 or 96 percent of liberals are in favor of work being a component of the safety net. Oh, yeah. Now, this is the most amazing thing. You find that the elite left, they, they make a couple of huge errors that the right never exploits. One is the way they talk about work. The left always talks about work as if it were a punishment as opposed to a blessing. When we talk about work for the poor, so work requirements, you don't, you shouldn't have it because those are why punish poor people. I've heard liberals say this before. We shouldn't have work requirements. That's punishing poor people. 
conservatives, we understand that work is never a punishment. Work is a blessing. We're not talking about making license plates in prison here. We're talking about people being able to earn some of these benefits so they can earn some of the dignity that's their God-given right. Everybody listening to this podcast is, is so grateful for their ability to earn their success, so grateful for their ability to create value with their lives and value in the lives of other people. And it's a question of basic social justice to spread that around to more people, including poor people. Like you said earlier, we're not going to get in the business of handing out freebies here. But I think one of the reasons conservatives have a, a tough time reaching low-income Americans is because low-income Americans can see a tangible and more immediate payoff from liberal social policies. And conservative arguments for low taxes, economic growth, entrepreneurship, and you know, rhetoric like a rising tide will lift all ships. It, uh, it, it's so far removed from their lives and their immediate needs. Are there specific policies that we can put in place or that we can point to that say, here is how we can help you right now? Absolutely. And, and give a, a lot of examples of the policies that we should be implementing in the conservative heart. Uh, I have a, a chapter in the book called A Social Justice Agenda for Conservatives that is actual policies that we have in there. And let me give you an example of a policy that we're justifiably against and then what we can be for. We talk all the time about the minimum wage. Conservatives hate the minimum wage, but they always talk about it in materialistic ways. They'll say it's bad for business. That's the wrong way to think about it. The only reason we should care about the minimum wage is because it's a terribly messy policy that destroys jobs for the poorest Americans. So a $15 minimum wage is great for my teenage kids. It's horrible for somebody who's a high school dropout and is simply trying to make ends meet in a job without very much work experience. So it's terrible for poor African-American men who have dropped out of high school, for example. And these are the people who need these advantages the most. Okay, it's not good enough just to be against the minimum wage policy, however. You have to give something that will make work pay. You gotta have a policy. You have to have something that the country can do and to say, ah, oh, we'll just create some jobs down the line. That's not good enough. Here's a policy. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. That the government has been in this business and Milton Friedman loved this policy from the very beginning because what it does is it for low income working Americans, it augments their paycheck. Is it expensive? Yeah, but we can afford it. And simply put, I want to make work pay. That's why I pay taxes. I want poor Americans to earn their success too. And we can expand that to the people who are not getting it right now. Single men don't get it. Single men are the single most uh, discriminated against group in public policy in America today because we don't think they deserve anything, yet there are too many that are shut out of labor markets. So here's what conservatives need to do. You talk about the minimum wage. You always get demagogic nonsense from the left, like, let's give America a raise. That's a direct quote from Barack Obama. Easy to say. doesn't work that way. We might as well just say, let's destroy a bunch of poor people's jobs. Here's what we say. Look, I think morally that Americans, if they work hard and play by the rules, even if they're poor, they should be able to support themselves. The minimum wage doesn't guarantee that. As a matter of fact, it makes it harder for the poorest people. So I have a policy that's going to get it done called the Earned Income Tax Credit. One, two, three. Statement of moral purpose, the reason you're against the other policy, and who you're fighting for with a better policy. If we can do that, we can change the debate. Well, you know, it, it, and it is. It's hard. It's a struggle, especially, like you said, for young people. And because you have kids in this day and age who are starting out life with an insurmountable amount of debt with student loans and so forth. And then they get out of college. There are no jobs. What is the solution that we can offer young people? 
Well, the, one of the biggest problems that we have in America today with respect to higher education is that we're forcing too many people into the higher education system, and then we're subsidizing it with a federalized student loan program that drives the price up, and then we're requiring, effectively requiring families to go too far in debt. It's a conspiracy against people who wouldn't necessarily go to college in the first place. They just want to make a living. It's, you know, I wasn't ready for college when I was 18 years old, and a lot of people shouldn't have to go to college and study what you study there anyway. You know, it's a, it's this most astonishing conversation I've ever seen where in America, a country that's supposed to value everybody for their work, where there's moral equivalence between running a hedge fund and, and trimming hedges. Still, at this point in our history, we have a president and vice president of the United States who actually use the expression dead-end jobs. The Vice President of the United States goes on TV and extols the virtues of Obamacare because it allows women to quit their so-called dead-end jobs. I, I fell out of my chair. It's completely immoral to classify somebody else's job where they're working hard as a dead-end job. There are no dead-end jobs. There's dead-end government. There's dead-end culture. But there are no dead-end jobs. There's a lot more that we can do without forcing people to go through college, without forcing people to study things that are not really useful to them. And that means reimagining training and vocational and technical education in this country. There are countries all over the world that take morally seriously jobs that don't require college. Germany is a perfect example of a country that does this really well. And we should have not just community colleges, we should have vocational and technical schools, which are very, very uh, inexpensive to run in ways where people don't go into tremendous amounts of debt. And we should train people for jobs that actually are not getting done in this country. And you're saying this as a former college professor. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And I'm saying this as a, col a former college dropout, too. And, yeah, you know, it's too. just amazing how in America we become so classist about college. When I dropped out of college all the way through my 20s, I finished college at 30. So all the way through my 20s, people would ask, you know, fancy people, sophisticated people. They'd say, where'd you go to college? And I'd say, I didn't go to college. And they would treat me like kind of a dummy. Amazing. And then, then I go back to college and get my PhD and suddenly I'm smart. I'm the same guy. We have to do better in America. We'll take a quick break. And then in the next half, I want to put some of this into practice and look at how some of these principles can help conservatives win in 2016. Back in just a moment. If you're enjoying today's podcast with my guest, Arthur Brooks, then I think you'll love his new book, The Conservative Heart. How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from Audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Conservative Heart by Arthur Brooks or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And if you like Kickass Politics and want to help keep us on the air, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep us producing new and even more interesting programs in the future. That's GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics.
And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with Arthur C. Brooks, author of The Conservative Heart. Let's put this into practice. Uh, toward the end of the book, you talk about the seven habits of highly effective conservatives. Run through those with us. Well, the seven habits of highly effective conservatives starts with a very simple premise. And again, these were the principles. These are the principles that I use when I'm working with members of Congress uh, on how they become, can can win debates. And, and by the way, then my guarantee for readers is if they commit these principles, not just to memory, but more or less to familiarity, they'll never lose a Thanksgiving dinner argument with a liberal ever again. Okay, <laughs> So that's my guarantee. The first is, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true, make a moral argument. We're really good on the right of making materialistic arguments. Got to stop doing that. Got to make moral arguments. Moral arguments are the ones that touch the heart, and they're all about compassion and fairness. I know conservatives right now are saying, fairness, what do you mean? The answer is real fairness. Real fairness is not income equality. Real fairness means you're rewarded for your hard work, personal responsibility, and merit. And that's what most Americans really understand is true fairness. When we get into that fight and we make moral arguments, we really start to win. That's the important thing. The second thing is when you're making moral arguments, you're talking about people. A classic error that conservatives make is they fight against things. Conservatives need to fight for people. Winners fight for people. Losers fight against things. Majorities fight for people. Minority, minorities in, the, in numbers, political minorities, fight against things. We have to get away from this idea that we take the, the democratic, liberal agenda, policy agenda as a given and fight against it. No, we have to look at the people that are being hurt by it, the people that we want to build up, the people that should be the heroes of the American economy all across the economy and the, and the nation and fight for those people. So principle number two, fight for people, not against things. Principle number three, is be a happy warrior. Think about all of the people that have had the greatest impression on us, the greatest positive impression on us. They, they weren't milk toasts. They weren't weak. They were fighters in a lot of cases, but they were happy people. One of the greatest uh, problems that we have in the conservative movement today is that most Americans think that we're grim and think that we're angry. In point of fact, too often the Republican Party is the angry party. Now that's better than the Democratic Party, which you is the angry party. You have someone in particular party. in mind. <laughs> What's that? I said, do you have someone in particular in mind? <laughs> sure. I mean, we, we listen to you know the early early parts of the nomination process. We have candidates who are you know standing up saying that everybody else is stupid and is a dummy and vilifying other uh, other people and talking as if. Other Americans were as bad as Al-Qaeda. Yeah. It's got to stop. The yeah. angry party doesn't work. The happy party does. Because remember, we're trying to get people who are not with us to be with us. And a happy persona is going to draw them in. That's the most important thing to keep in mind. Now, moving on is where it gets kind of interesting. It gets into a little bit of brain science. We have uh, done measurements on how long it takes for the human brain to apprehend a message. In other words, when you start talking to somebody, how long before they figure out what you're all about? And the answer is 30 seconds. You got 30 seconds. Conservatives are terrible about making arguments in 30 seconds. They're pretty good at 30 minutes. I mean, Ben, you and yeah. I have 30 minutes today, yeah. and that's great, but usually you don't get that. So you need to practice your speech. 
in 30 minutes. So I work with politicians on their actual pitch. Actually, I make them get it down to seven seconds because I think seven seconds is better, particularly on TV and remembering that. And then getting out of the bad habits that come along. See, these are the principles, uh, how to break the bad habits that you have rhetorically. These are the principles that go into winning debates. And, and a lot of them are basically common sense and ethical principles about being a decent person. You know, I've done a number of conservative political ads over the years, and I, I came to it from a little bit of a different perspective because I come from Hollywood in the entertainment industry. And one of my biggest frustrations was I would talk to clients and I would say, you've got to make people feel something. Um, you've got to make them care. And so uh -huh. many of them, so many of the political cl clients that I had would look down their noses at that and say, emotion is a liberal thing. That, that's not us. That's not who we are. And I would say, you know, look at Reagan. Look at, you know, the Morning in America ads. I mean, how do you change that mentality, particularly with candidates who are running for office? Well, part of it is just demonstrating to them that what their old ways of doing business simply don't work. I mean, if you look at the last few presidential runs, you find that optimism and unity works. Pessimism, pessimism and division doesn't work. Uh, Mitt Romney lost, not because of the quality of his ideas. He won uh, all of the polls about the quality of his ideas and the quality of his leadership. He lost on who cares more about people like me. He lost that 80-20. So you find that when people are not making moral the moral case, where they're not talking about optimism, they don't act as if they have a heart for people. Quite frankly, they just lose. And this is one of the things I talk about in the book. There's a wonderful study that shows that political traits, the, when Republicans steal the political traits of Democrats, Republicans can walk off with elections. So people see Republicans as being naturally moral and strong leaders. People see Democrats as naturally empathetic and compassionate. This has been going on for years and years and years, and there's a lot of data that support this. The question is, if you're a Republican, should you double down on the conservative traits or should you steal the traits of the other side? Now, when you were talking about your political clients, you basically were having a bunch say, no, 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 no. I'm going to be redder than red. I'm just going to be more conservative than the other guys because I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize my natural traits. That's a mistake. People are going to think you have those traits anyway. If you take two candidates, or conservative and a liberal, and, and, and you have political independents who are assessing them, and they believe that the two candidates are equally compassionate as people. They don't think they have equally high-quality policies. They're just equally compassionate people. That fact literally will swing the independent vote by 10 percentage points to the conservative. Now, what I'm saying here, Ben, is simple. Compassion and hu uh, a human-centric approach, optimism and joy and a belief in people, these are not something that can win. They're the only thing that will win. Well, that's true. And we have some very sticky voting blocks for conservatives right now. Uh, and this next election probably will hinge on us making headroads into those groups, one of them being the Latino vote. Some people in the 2016 field I, we won't name names here, but aren't exactly doing us a favor in that regard. How can the conservative heart appeal to Hispanics in a way that says, yes, we want border security, but we don't hate you. We, we yeah. actually we do value you as someone someone who is investing in the American dream just the same as we all are. 
Yeah. And, and the first thing to keep in mind is that public opinion uh, polling shows that Latinos care about border security, too, because they want sovereignty as a nation. They feel American. They don't feel like they're not American and they don't want lawlessness and chaos any more than anybody else does. That's because they're just like us in these ways, which is normal. But they don't want a party that acts like it doesn't like Hispanics, that it doesn't like Latinos, that feels like Latinos are the other. So here's the really good news. The really good news about Latino voting. When you look at Latinos, uh, they they vote, those who are eligible to vote, voted about half the rate of blacks and whites. That's not the good news. Here's the interesting part. The half that vote tend to vote more or less like African-Americans. They disproportionately vote for Democratic candidates. The half that are eligible to vote but who don't vote are more likely to call themselves conservative than white Americans. So what gives? You basically have the ones who are mobilized to vote feeling like liberals. The ones who are not mobilized to vote feeling like conservatives, but they can't relate to the Republican Party. So here's the solution. We have to talk about valuing everybody. We have to bring more more Latinos into Republican and conservative leadership. We have to take seriously the fact that we are a multicultural society and we value everybody in the same way. It's the same problem, Ben, by the way, with Indian Americans. About 3 million Indian Americans in the United States today, the most single successful immigrant group in American history, and they vote 80% for Democrats in the presidential elections. It's crazy. And the reason is when you drill into the public opinion polling that they don't feel at home. They don't feel valued. They don't feel comfortable. We have to think about why people don't feel comfortable on the conservative side. A more inclusive, a more tolerant, a more humanistic approach to American conservative politics can turn these things around. They can do it in one generation. Here's how I know. I'm a practicing Roman Catholic. 75 years ago, 0% chance I'd be voting for Republicans or I'd be in a conservative leadership position. What happened? What happened was that conservative politics became more inclusive of serious Catholics. It made serious Catholics feel at home. So there was nothing weird about me being a conservative today, whereas 75 years ago would have been impossible. We have to recreate that and we have to be serious about it. So we should probably should we stop calling Latinos losers or rapists and <laughs> that, that would be a very good place a good to start? start to start. Here's a prince. Here's the, 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 the principle I'll give, you know, and then as a marketing guy, you'll tell me whether it's right or not. You can't insult people into joining you. Yeah. That's no way to, to win friends and influence people. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what are a few of, uh, of the issues that we're neglecting that we should be campaigning on uh, that kind of incorporate the, this idea of the conservative heart? There are two biggies. Number one is the thing that we always stay away from, which is poverty. Poverty is something that conservatives have stayed away from because I think it's the comparative advantage of the left. When conservatives steal that issue, it's not important that everybody thinks that conservatives' ideas are better about poverty. What's important is that people understand that we care about poverty, and that will swing people to our side. Now, of course, we have to deliver. We have to have better policies, too, but we do have better policies that are more merciful to poor people. So let's examine our hearts. Let's have our, our political leaders examine their hearts and say, do I really want policies that have a preference for pushing power down to the people who don't have any power? Do I really want to have a preference for the poor? Do I want a society where we have policies that can lift people up? 
I think the answer is yes. And they need to say it and have poverty policies front and center. That's number one. Number two is we have to use our comparative advantage of a good, strong national security policy, but in a grand strategic way that's deeply moral. You know, we have a tendency on the, on the right to kind of run away from national security stuff. I mean, we're feeling kind of bummed out about the wars and the Bush years. Yeah, I got that. I got that. But to say that the only point of national security is never anything more than protecting the homeland. Now, you know, we believe that a world is better when more people have can share American values. I don't think we should go everywhere and fight everybody over everything. Of course not. But I think that we have a moral imperative of looking at democratic capitalism around the world and saying, which countries are democratic capitalists? They're our friends. That's the reason, by the way, democratic capitalism is the reason that we support Israel all the time and Taiwan all the time. We need a national security policy that's based on moral principle, and Americans will see that and they'll support it. Yeah, because uh, the perception is that we only go to war when we have some kind of self-interest, some kind of national interest. And I think we need to get back to articulating it in a way that that relates more to uh, what we were doing in the Cold War. Yeah, where you know America is a country that, from its inception, has always tried to help people who aspired to freedom. That's right, and we you know we believe that our values are good for us. They're good for others. Not everybody's ready for them in equal degree, and we don't have to fight for people to have a system they don't want. Absolutely. But when we have, when there are people who are aspiring to something better, we need to support them. We need to support them diplomatically. Sometimes we need to support them militarily. And it comes down to our vision of a better world. It's not just for us. It's not fortress America. It's better for all people. And and if we can remember that, then we can have a morally based foreign policy that, by the way, is the same as our morally based poverty policy. Extraordinary that we could have that kind of consistency in our in our policies. But if we did that, then America. Americans are going to see what's written on our conservative hearts, and that's truly the beginning of victory. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you another issue that I think we have we're just missing out on, except for a handful of cases. There are a few ca- candidates who are just now starting to kind of get on the bandwagon. Uh, Jeb Bush and Rand Paul um, is the sharing economy. It's a losing issue for liberals because they're completely against any kind of innovation. And this is something that that uplifts people. It brings people out of lower income brackets. It's great for young people. Uh, I, I did an episode a, a little while ago with Grover Norquist, and we were talking about how there there were people who kept themselves from losing their home or their apartment by renting it out on Airbnb. And you have people who are making ends meet by being Uber drivers. And liberals yeah. want to just shut all this down and just throw those people out in the streets. We we really should be getting on board. We should be saying we are the party of innovation and we want you to be able to pull up yourself from your bootstraps and do it on your own and not have to wait around for a job to land in your lap. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, the Democrats are the post office party. They want these antiquated solutions that that pound people into these weird old labor laws. We should be all about setting people free because we believe in them. And you know, the sharing economy is one example of that. We should be futuristic. People should look at the, at the at the conservative movement in America and say, "Wow, you know, those guys are thinking ahead," as, as opposed to just thinking that we're really angry and fighting against everything. Well, I know you have to go. So the last question I'll ask you is: Are there any particular candidates who are doing a particularly good job at this right now? I see much better rhetoric coming from the mainstream body of candidates than I've seen in my adult lifetime. 
And I, I don't count the Reagan years because Reagan was first elected a little bit before I was I was legal to vote. Um, but since then, this is the best crop of candidates who's t- talking about poverty. And when you, when you hear Marco Rubio talk about his personal story and his aspirations for people who are poor, like his parents who are refugees, when you when you listen to Jeb Bush about his the things he did in Florida for poor people and giving kids educational opportunity and fighting for entrepreneurs and the right to rise which he feels at a deep moral level. You hear Scott Walker increasingly talking about his his vision of optimism for America and, and proclaiming, I'm an optimist. Our best years are before us. This is very different than the old rhetoric of, oh, bad things are coming unless you for us. When you hear uh, Chris Christie is going to come back, I think very strong at this point, and telling the stories about how he would go into communities in New Jersey, well, they didn't like him. They voted 94% against him, but he was there because he wanted to know what their needs are, and he understood, and I think he does understand, that great leaders don't fight for people who support them. They fight for people who need them. That's how you turn envy and anger really truly into aspiration. Those are some leading candidates who are optimistic. They're pro-poor. And so I'd say that that top tier right there gives me, frankly, gives me a whole lot of grounds for optimism. Yeah, it's a pretty good crop. And I can think back to when I first met Marco, Marco Rubio, that is. Um, I heard him speak way back when he was still in the Florida State House, And I was just blown away because here was a guy who was able to articulate conservative principles in terms of kitchen table issues that actually related to real people's lives. Well, I appreciate it, Arthur. One more question here. Uh, Does anyone ever confuse you with Albert Brooks? All the time since I was a kid. And and I'll tell you a story, Ben, from last summer. I was at a place out west, and I was sitting around a campfire, and and I noticed that the guy sitting just to the left of me was Albert Brooks, the actor. (laughs) And so I get to talking to him. He's a really nice guy. And I said, you know what? I I said, I got a problem with you. And he said, what's the problem with me? And he said, my name is Arthur Brooks. And since I was a kid, people have been calling me Albert Brooks because you, because you're a famous guy. And he, and, and he looked at me, and without skipping a beat, even smiling, he said, imagine how Adam Hitler felt. <laughs> yeah. he, he is a terrific guy. He's one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. Well, thank you so much for coming on to discuss The Conservative Heart, Arthur. It's a great book, and I highly recommend it to everyone. Thank you, Ben. What a pleasure to be with you, and uh, I really appreciate all your listeners. Well, thanks again to Arthur C. Brooks for coming on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed his book, The Conservative Heart, and I think you will, too. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say that every single one of the Republican candidates for president should read this book. So I'll include an Amazon link where you can order The Conservative Heart in the show notes at kickasspolitics.com. Or if you prefer, there's also an audio version of The Conservative Heart, and you can get it for free with that special 30-day free trial from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download The Conservative Heart or any book you want totally free. What could be better than that? I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you can automatically get new episodes as they become available. And while you're there, please leave us a review. That helps a lot with our rankings on iTunes. And if you like kick-ass politics and want to help keep us on the air, then support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kick-ass politics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. 
Your support does matter, and I do appreciate it. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com or leave a voicemail on the toll-free listener hotline at 844-KA-POLITICS. In the next episode, I'll talk with Ronald Bailey. He's a writer for Reason Magazine and author of a new book called The End of Doom. He says we need to stop screaming the sky is falling about the environment, GMOs, and global population growth and start taking a more rational, data-driven approach to these issues. So be sure to subscribe and download the next episode. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.